This episode of Asymmetrical Haircuts is supported by JusticeInfo.net. I have not been able to communicate with either of these plaintiffs. Um, how on earth are you representing them when you don't know what, 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 when you can't talk to them? Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Okay, well, today we're going to be taking a look at the United States of America and the way that they deal with war crimes and their rather intricate, fraught, let's say, relationship with the International Criminal Court. And we have with us a woman who's been fighting for years to get U.S. officials held accountable for war crimes and torture. It's Catherine Gallagher, senior staff attorney from the Center for Constitutional Rights and visiting professor at CUNY Law School. Hi, Catherine. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. We managed to catch you in The Hague because you're involved in the ICC Afghanistan case. And as we speak to you, you've just spent three days um, arguing in court on behalf of your clients that the court should allow the prosecutor to open a criminal investigation of of alleged U.S. torture in that country and at CIA black sites. Can you explain who your clients are and why they are turning to the ICC instead of the U.S. system? Sure. Well, um, it was a big week at the ICC, and and frankly, it was the biggest week we've had so far, the biggest court appearance in many, many years um, when it comes to the U.S. torture program and the U.S. detention of individuals in the post-9-11, September 11th period. Um, The two men that I had the privilege of representing at the hearing at the International Criminal Court are named Sharkawi Al-Hajj and Galid Duran. And what's their connection to this? So both men um, had been picked up in that post-September 11th period on very speculative suspicions of links to, um, to terrorism of one shape or another. It's hard to say exactly what because they've never been charged with a crime. Um, in the case of Sharkawi al-Hajj, he was picked up in Pakistan in 2002 He was turned over by the Pakistanis to the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, flown from Pakistan to Jordan, held in proxy detention in Jordan for 23 months. And Jordan, we should note, is an ICC member state. And from Jordan was flown to Afghanistan again by the CIA, held there for eight months. And as is well known, Afghanistan is an ICC member state from May 2003 onwards. So the entire time Sharkawi was there. And then from Afghanistan flown to Guantanamo in late 2004, and that's where he's remained for the last 15 years, again, in a state of, a, of indefinite detention. Um, so that is the one client. And the other person, Galid Hassan Duran, he was, he was flying, um, I should say Sharkawi is Yemeni. Uh, Galid was flying from Somalia, which is where he's from, through um Djibouti on way to get medical treatment. And he was picked up in the airport by Djiboutian security forces. This is now, we're in early 2004. And he was turned over in Djibouti. And as 
listeners may or may not know, Djibouti is also an ICC member state, um, turned over to the CIA and flown to locations which, frankly, I do not know. Because he doesn't know himself. I have not been able to communicate with either of these plaintiffs. Um, How on earth are you representing them when you don't know what, what, what when you can't talk to them? Well, and, and, and maybe I can step back. Um, I'll just finish off with, so Galid, we know he was flown to numerous locations and ultimately ended up in Guantanamo in September 2006 when George Bush announced the delivery of so-called high-value detainees to Guantanamo, and Galid was one of them. And through a leaked international or released International Committee of the Red Cross report, he's detailed in that, and that's how I know he was in Afghanistan. Now, to answer the bigger question, how can you represent individuals that you have not spoken to? It's a, it's a very strange situation. Um, so the organization that I work for, the Center for Constitutional Rights, was really at the forefront of filing what are called habeas corpus petitions back in late 2001, early 2002. That means, uh, say, um, it's something to do with find the body, as in find these people. Exactly. So when individuals started to disappear um, as the U.S. military operations took off in Afghanistan, uh, family members were trying to find where their loved ones were. So through the work that we have historically done in the human rights field, we ended up being a place that was getting some calls. And so as the first Guantanamo detainees arrived um, in January 2002, we were filing the first habeas corpus petitions. So the Center for Constitutional Rights ended up ultimately taking that first case with a small number of other lawyers to the U.S. Supreme Court, winning in a case called Rasul v. Bush in 2004, winning access to Guantanamo. And so at that point, there were, I believe, around 680 men and boys um, detained at Guantanamo. So we helped to build a coalition of lawyers from literally all over the country, and in, in some cases beyond the United States, to represent these men. And so I have a set of colleagues at CCR, the Center for Constitutional Rights, who have been representing men um, detained at Guantanamo for 17 years really challenging, difficult work, because after that Supreme Court victory, you would think that maybe we would get the men out, especially when they're held indefinitely without charge under conditions that have been documented to be torture. But they are there are still 40 men who are held at Guantanamo, and Sharkawi and Galid are two of them. So how is it that you can actually represent people that you haven't seen You've described them very well. You obviously know all about them. You maybe have met their families. Maybe you've met other people who've 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 talked to them. But how can you actually do that? So I have colleagues at the Center for Constitutional Rights who are representing these men in habeas corpus proceedings, and my colleagues have all. Um, they all have security clearances. So because of those security clearances, they're able to have very transparent conversations with their clients, but they're also then not able to discuss in the public domain um, so much of the information they hear from their the clients. I do not have security clearance. So what I am able to do is pick up 
information from the public domain and put that forward to the ICC. So when my colleagues have decisions or briefs that they have had parts of it cleared for release, I will then review those documents and incorporate all the public information into my pleadings. Um, the clients certainly know and have empowered me to do this work. Um, I'm in touch with some of their family members, but I am not able to have a direct communication with them. I'm only able to take information once it's in the, the public domain. And so again, my colleagues are not able to confirm or deny anything I put in pleadings, but they do bring all of those documents to the clients. Sounds like you've been through an enormous number of different procedures. Here you were at the ICC. Did it go well, do you think? I am hopeful um, that we may finally see the opening of an investigation into the U.S. Uh, torture program, a long overdue uh, investigation. Yes, it's true, we have been litigating in many fora. Um, in addition to the habeas litigation in U.S. courts, we have brought civil actions, civil lawsuits for violations of international law on behalf of individuals who've gone through the torture program. Um, and all of those cases have been dismissed, denied, blocked. So there has been no civil remedy against U.S. officials in U.S. courts. I have also worked with lawyers from various countries to try and bring cases under what are known as universal jurisdiction laws in Switzerland, France, Spain, Germany, and Canada, and thus far have had um, no open criminal investigations. And those cases stem from the fact that all of the countries I just mentioned, and frankly, most of the world, um, are signatories to the Convention Against Torture. And CAT requires that countries um, have a domestic criminal law against torture, and that if someone who is a, a suspected uh, torturer is present in their country, they have an obligation to prosecute. In some cases, the person doesn't even need to be present. So that's a series of cases, these universal jurisdictions jurisdiction cases. And with all of these efforts having yet to yield any kind of accountability or redress for our clients, we are absolutely at the right place now being at the ICC in The Hague. The U.S. often gives, and that we heard again in the Afghanistan case, um, this case voiced by the lawyer for Donald Trump who came to give a presentation, is to say that the U.S. has this system and it is working and so um, the ICC can't step in because of complementarity, which means they can only step in when a state is unwilling or unable to prosecute. What would your reply be to that? Well, then I guess I've been doing something very wrong for the last uh, 15 years that I've been at CCR. Um, now, of course, we wish that the United States would investigate and prosecute. And that is why we have held meetings with uh, members of the Department of Justice and the Department of State. We have presented evidence to them. They also have more than enough information from Senate investigations, from military investigations, from CIA inspector general reports to know that laws were broken. Um, but there has been an absolute unwillingness across, of course, the Bush administration, which is the administration that we say um, really oversaw the torture program. But that can 
continued through the Obama administration, where we had President Obama say, you know, let's look forward, not back. And that takes us to where we are now in the forward stage with Donald Trump, who wants to bring back torture and has a person who ran a CIA black site as the head of his CIA. But why is that, do you think? Why is there this resistance to ripping the plaster off and really looking under and and finding out what, what went on? Is it just fear of what they would find and therefore so many heads would roll? Or uh, is it because we, you know, the US doesn't want to believe that its personnel have behaved that badly? Why is it? I don't have a, a really good answer for that question. And, you know, in the first two scenarios that you laid out, figuring out how bad it was, we actually know how bad it was. The 2008 Senate Armed Services Committee report was quite shocking. When the Inspector General reports came out, um, the Inspector General of the CIA talking about having people um, kept naked and chained in dungeons with loud music and waterboarding 83 times. That came out. That is known. Putting a drill to someone's head in a mock execution. The fact that this was done by Americans is known. And, and yes, there was shock and disgust, but there were not prosecutions and it was forgotten. Um, then in 2014, we had the Senate torture report came out, at least the executive summary, 500 plus pages. There are still thousands more that we don't know. And this described just absolutely disgusting, inconceivably cruel treatment, um, acts that are undoubtedly illegal in torture. And again, the moment came and went. So it's not that the facts aren't known. They are. Um, is there a concern about what happens when you start prosecuting the powerful and where do you stop? You know, if you start with torture, what happens with drone strikes and the killing of civilians? Uh, that might be part of it. Is it that there's a certain club of those that are in power, that they all have a kind of tacit agreement that they don't hold each other accountable? Because again, once you start, where do you stop? Um, but I think what we see now is the results. In, in 2019, 2020, we are in a dangerous moment of lawlessness globally, where there are um, leaders in, in too many countries to even name who are truly embracing unlawful policies as state policy. So um, in some ways, what happened at the ICC with hearings about the U.S. torture program, and let's let's also very much highlight the ongoing crimes against Afghan civilians by the Taliban and Afghan forces, um, historic crimes against them over the last 15 years, but ongoing crimes every day too. Um, this isn't this isn't history. History. This is very real, and if we can stop impunity here, we may have a shot at impacting some of the policies and practices of governments in this moment. So I think it's important not only for my clients to know that their stories are heard and that those who have been subjecting them to torture and other international law violations are held accountable, but I also think it, it sends a clearer message that if those who are perceived so powerful can also be held to account, maybe we should stop breaking the law. Before you were talking about the current Trump administration, who basically said torture may be necessary, he's pardoning service personnel convicted of war crimes that even the U.S. military didn't want him to do. Um, is this a fundamental shift 
in U.S. policy that we're seeing now with Trump? You called it a very dangerous moment. Is it more than that? Or is it now more that it's becoming express what the U.S. was already doing, but he's blatantly kind of, or this administration is blatantly admitting to it? Yeah, no, I think that's a very important question um, because often we can see what happened in Guantanamo or in CIA black sites as wholly um, exceptional and a break. And I, I think there is some continuum to U.S. foreign policy and, and also U.S. domestic policy. Um, we don't hear reports of, of conduct quite like what we heard about in CIA black sites or Guantanamo every day in U.S. prisons. But we do have solitary confinement where people are held for 23 hours a day, which is recognized as a form of torture. Um, the U.S. torture program was directed against Muslims. We have a, a longstanding problem with Islamophobia in our country. And so I think what Donald Trump stepped into was very fertile ground to take practices that, you know, we liked to look at as fringe or marginalized and brought it to the, the fore and made it, yes, okay to say this in a public sphere. And now he's taking it even further. The pardons of war criminals is something that has shaken a lot of people. The military, I, I want to add, and it's maybe surprising in some ways as a human rights attorney that some of my strongest um, like-minded partners in this are people out of the military because they understand so clearly why it is important to have um, straight lines and, and clear lines of what is legal and how, what is illegal. They understand how complex war actually is and and why it is you need to know what you can do and what you can't do and, and that there is an overarching principle of protection of civilians in war. Donald Trump doesn't have any of that background. I mean, we see in his, in his, um, in his, personal dealings that he has a certain disdain for the rule of law. Let's just say that. Um, and now the way he's brought it out into official policies, um, it just really reflects that this it's disturbing that this is the commander in chief. Um, and when the military pushed back on the pardons, he just said, well, don't kid yourself. We, in this part is a quote, we train our soldiers to be quote, killing machines. And then uh, in a tweet order that they quote, get back to business. Um, for me, having spent some time in my early career at the ICTR, the Rwandan war crimes tribunal, hearing that language just brought back to me some of the incitement. It's it's a very, again, I, I said dangerous. I, I also, in some ways, mean a very scary moment for us um, in the U.S. where it feels um, removed completely from the rule of law. So getting back to your concrete question, I think before there was a lot of pushing of boundaries, and now it's really made official, overt, and um, to quote Dick Cheney, which I never would, you know, the gloves have come off. And it's frightening to know where that will take us. Can we also um, uh, draw back a little bit and look, look at the context of the kind of complicated relationship that the US has with the ICC? Um, it took an enormous effort for uh, Clinton to end up uh, signing the Rome Statute 
uh, or his ambassador to sign the Rome Statute, but then they never ratified. Then President Bush uh, tried to withdraw that signature. We've got the thing that's known as the Hague Invasion Act, which still applies, meaning that uh, that the US could come in and rescue uh, service personnel if necessary, if they were ever put on trial. Um, does um, does that all play in your mind as you're as you're trying to to appear at the ICC and understand that uh, that the US really doesn't like this court, does it? Yeah, um, it it certainly does play it in my mind in many many different ways. And maybe to unpack your question a bit, I actually had been in Rome as a a law student intern, and so I had seen David Sheffer as the US ambassador, and at that point. Um, you know, he was advocating strongly for the U.S. position around things like Security Council control over the prosecutor or provisions to try and make carve-outs for non-nationals. Um, so it was extremely gratifying to see him at the hearing on the Afghanistan decision stand up so strongly um, for the underlying principles of what the International Criminal Court is about, to also stand up and express the best intentions, I think, of what the U.S. often wants in in terms of um, its legacy as a country that respects the rule of law and is a leader when it comes to international law and human rights. Um, And his explanations about some of the drafting history, I think we will end up seeing reflected, I hope, um, in the decision by the appeals chamber. So it was extremely interesting kind of 21 years later to see him across the courtroom advocating positions very much in line with with mine and in support of, of torture victims ultimately. Um, what we saw then in 2002, I was working at the Yugoslav War Crimes Tribunal, the ICTY, where Slobodan Milosevic was on trial, and the U.S. was very supportive of that tribunal. Meanwhile, we hear about the U.S. negotiating all of these bilateral agreements to try and have carve-outs um, from ever being held before Americans being held before the ICC. And it didn't really make sense. Fast forward 10 years, and we start to get the details of the U.S. torture program. And it becomes clear why it was that the U.S. was trying to get Eastern European countries, which we now know hosted CIA black sites, to make commitments to never turn someone over to the ICC or Afghanistan, because what the U.S. was doing at that time, while John Bolton was going around and getting trying to get these bilateral immunity agreements, they had other members of the Bush administration flying around and getting commitments to host proxy detention sites or open prisons and torture people. So, so you think even at that time they, they were knew what about- they were doing. They knew precisely what they were doing. We, the the rest of the international uh, criminal law community, being so confused by what's the fixation, um, I think, again, it's become clear because they were running a torture program at that point in time. And you very obviously, you call it the U.S. torture program. Um, Can you give us an idea of how systematic, how organized it was, how many people involved, how many victims? Do we have ideas of those, those numbers and the kind of... Um, system behind it? Sure. Um, Yes, and we did call it the U.S. torture program at the International Criminal Court 
again and again and again. Um, and we have a definition of it also in our briefing. But in essence, what the U.S. torture program was, some will refer to it as the rendition, interrogation, and detention program, but it was the um, kind of global network of detention sites, but also pickups and drop-offs and transfers. So there were individuals who were picked up in Pakistan, individuals who were picked up in Afghanistan, but also individuals who were picked up in places like Macedonia or in Thailand or in Djibouti. Um, and they were flown on these CIA rendition flights being moved outside the boundary of law with stopovers. Uh, you know, I represented a man named Maharar, Maharar, a Canadian citizen, flying home in 2002 from a family holiday in North Africa through JFK, picked up in JFK in New York, and flown with a stopover in Rome to refuel onto Jordan, where he was turned over to Syrians and kept in a, a Syrian torture dungeon for almost a year before the Canadians got him out and, and, and he went home to Canada, having been tortured. So, you know, even that flight, he flew over the airspace of many ICC member states, stopped in Rome to refuel. And, and I have to say, the number of airports in Europe that were used for as refueling stations, when I travel to this day, I look at airports in a very different way, wondering what's happening on these side, um, side tarmacs, who might be in these small planes. And they hired these luxury jets and had essentially a, 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 a group of torture flights that were happening. So the number of ICC member states who were implicated in some way is well over 40 um, with giving approvals for flight um, flights to go through their airspace to refuel, to send interrogators down to Guantanamo, to um, participate in detention operations or even these capture and kidnapping operations. So it was quite extensive. And we've seen some small measure of accountability when it comes to European complicity. Still nowhere near enough. But for me, what the International Criminal Court is appropriate for is that country and those government officials and, and contractors um, who really were the masterminds of this global program, and that's U.S. officials. But there has also been some cordiality, let's say, actually a positive relationship between the U.S. and the ICC. We saw cooperation over Darfur. We saw cooperation over searching for the head of the Ugandan rebel group, the LRA, even uh, helping to hand over Dominic Ongwen, who's still currently on trial at, uh, at the ICC. Uh, then we've had most recently the administration revoking the visas for ICC officials. It feels very kind of pendulum. You know, it goes one way and then the other. Can they sort out what they want? Well, I think with like so much, um, the ICC from the U.S. perspective is a is a tool to be used for its ends. And so during the Obama years where there was some positive cooperation, and I, I think that that was the right thing to do, and I think it was probably appreciated by the ICC, it served its interests of being seen as a country that was back in the fold of the international community abiding by the rule of law. Um, when the 
request to open the situation in Afghanistan came, that was then the Trump administration. We were in November 2017. Um, and we should go back a year before that when Fatou Bensouda, the prosecutor of the ICC, put out her preliminary examination report in November 2016. It said that the investigation would be, uh, she would put in her request to open the investigation, quote, imminently. Now, of course, in November 2016, many of us had a huge shock when Donald Trump was elected president. So I also wonder whether that delay of a year was the prosecutor's office sort of figuring out what that new relationship would be. And once that request went in in November 2017, quite soon after, we, we saw the, the hostility start. John Bolton at that point was a private citizen and immediately had an op-ed run in the Washington uh, in the Wall Street Journal where he said ICC you're dead to us um, and maybe that was a job audition because then he became the national security advisor and in that position picked up the work that he had started in 2002 against the court and so we saw him, we saw Donald Trump at the General Assembly in September 2017, Mike Pompeo last December, December 2018, as the Assembly of States parties was happening in The Hague, he was down the road in, in Brussels, again, railing against the ICC. And of course, as you mentioned, that culminated in the um, revocation of the visa for the prosecutor to the United States. And then, of course, the what we saw right after that was the decision, you know, this long-awaited, long-delayed decision by the pretrial chamber coming out with what so many perceive to be a, a political decision rather than a legally grounded decision where it denied the investigation. In the current climate, do you, like yourself, personally fear repercussions for your involvement in the case? politically or like what do you say at neighborhood barbecues when somebody asks you what you do for a living? Um, I, I personally feel like I'm still in a, a quite protected space. Maybe that's naive. Um, one of the things that was concerning when the threats were coming out from the Trump administration before the decision came out is not only did they threaten um, ICC personnel, they also threatened corporations. And what that term might have meant, there was some question, and we don't know, and, and you know, I don't want to put ideas in their head, but it's it's also out there that there was concern, do, we, do they mean the non- um, the NGOs that are litigating these cases? Uh, will they go against the organizations who are supporting um, the victims in these cases? Historically, when we were doing the Guantanamo work at, at some of the least popular moments, the bar associations were quite strong in coming out in support of us as lawyers. Um, so as a lawyer, I feel somewhat protected, and I'm a, I'm a born U.S. citizen, um, but I am very aware of the the um, environment that many of my colleagues are working under, who, whether because of their place of birth or because of their religion or because of their ethnicity or because of their sexual orientation or because of, of disabilities they may have. It's been a attack against so many of my colleagues and so many of, of our, the communities we work with, uh, just a nonstop attack since Donald Trump came in. Um, 
that that is exhausting and 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 scary for many and and I feel like I'm still on the far end of of a, quite a bit of privilege in, in doing this work but you don't know where it will end as a kind of wrap up at the end we always like to ask some um our asymmetrical haircuts questions which um are off the cuff so this is what we ask everybody and the first one is what does everybody always get wrong about the work that you do um you know i think one of the things people think that we're in court actually in court a lot more than we are um, this was a very big week for me personally this was the first time i've appeared at the international criminal court and it Even though I had been at the ICTY for many years, I found it a bit of a daunting experience. Um, and the way things are in that court where there's a lot of reading was also a different way that I work. So I think people are surprised that so much of our work um, is really at a desk, which I don't always love, um, doing a lot of legal research and a lot of writing. Um, the parts of the job I enjoy the most are when I'm able to meet with um, clients, or in this case, clients' families, speaking with the clients' families, or the community groups that really um, are the movement behind this work. And uh, maybe you spend your time reading uh, lots of legal texts, but maybe you also read some other things as well. Have you read anything or seen anything recently that you'd really like to uh, to recommend to people? Well, the movie I saw most recently was The Report, The Torture Report. I think it gives at least some dimension of what um, what happened and what was done um, through it, at least one man's perspective, a, a U.S. government official's perspective. It would be helpful, I think, to see more films that also pick up the story from the victim's perspective. But I do think um, for students, I, I have students at CUNY Law School who came to a screening And they were a bit younger than I am. And they had vague memories of, of some of this. I mean, the torture report wasn't so long ago when it came out. But for them, the movie was really revelatory. And I think it's important for people to know and continue to learn what was done in our names. Um, but what I actually enjoy reading now is a lot of Buddhist texts to try and stay calm and, um, and it compartmentalize the work a bit. Well, thank you very much for taking the time after what must have been crazy busy days for you at the ICC and in the Netherlands. We have a little present that we give to all the people who appear yeah. on the podcast. Thank you very much. I, I've seen the president. I'm very happy to bring it back to New York and have it on my desk. There you go. There's the mug. Thank you. And we will keep following the Afghanistan case at the ICC and we'll certainly keep in touch with you to see what the outcome is. So thanks very much. Bye. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.